Several years ago, I was giving a cheerful little talk at a local Christian college. It wasn't a sermon. It really was a happy little talk. It was meant to be encouraging, which is why I was surprised when the professor who invited me to give this one-hour lecture, which was intended to prepare people who were about to graduate from a selective Christian university, to prepare them for what was going to happen and what they could expect as they left the university and entered the workplace, the professor told me, don't be surprised if any number of students, if more than one student leaves the room in tears while you're talking. Well, I'm a pastor. I'm a little bit used to people walking out on me, but usually not in tears. Sometimes angrily, but never heartbroken. I said, well, what's going on? She said, probably a third of my students across all my classes are right at the breaking point, so it'll have nothing to do with you, but just that the students are really upset right now. I said, well, has there been a, was there a shooting on campus? Did a beloved student get killed or a professor die? She said, no, they're just really upset about what's happening in the country. And this is several years ago. Like every year, that year our country was being convulsed by about five things at once. So what, what specifically are they so upset about? And she mentioned something that was in the news about 1,500 miles away. And we got through the talk well enough. Nobody actually walked out. But I was surprised to learn that in a selective Christian university in a beautiful little suburb, people were wound this tightly. But then I had a different conversation with someone in an entirely different season of life with a lady who briefly attended our church who was nearly 100 years old. And I was sitting right back there in this auditorium because she couldn't go up the stairs to my office. And I held her hand while her eyes filled with tears and she told me just how surprised and shocked she was that all of her friends were dying. She was nearly 100. You're laughing for some cruel reason. <laughs> I kept it together, but I was surprised that people in all seasons of life, very young people who seemingly on the outside have nothing to worry about and everything to be grateful for, and someone who is approaching 100 years old, who you think has had years to think about their own fragility and their own mortality, seems completely shocked and surprised by the reality of suffering. But it's not so surprising. And we've actually heard an undercurrent of suffering in all the songs that we've sung today, at least in two of them. This last one that we just sang speaks about a lion in your lungs. There's a word picture for you. It's a little surprising. But as I hear that and that fresh word picture, I'm reminded of David in Psalm 103 saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Do not forget, David says, his benefits. If you read that psalm, David is talking himself into, he is telling himself, David is talking to himself. Be careful how you talk to yourself because nobody talks to you more than you do. And David is talking to himself saying, come on, David, don't forget in present suffering, in present disease, in present danger, do not forget all of the Lord's benefits to you. At the end of the psalm, he calls all of creation, all of God's angels to praise God. And he tells himself at the end of the psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then this kind of controversial song that we sang about 
Oh, how he loves us. Every time we sing that, I, if, I, if I'm in front of the congregation, I watch people react to it. Not everybody loves it. And it kind of put me off a little bit until this morning, and I understood it. Just this morning, because of something that one of the students in the band told me about the song, it finally clicked why I was uneasy with it and why it actually makes such perfect sense. You see, that song was never intended for public release. It was never intended for public worship. That song was written, I'm told, as a lament by the songwriter after his best friend died. That is a song of lament where the songwriter is reminding himself in spite of loss, in spite of shock and heartbreak, yes, he really does love us. That's why the language is so extravagant and sloppy. Kind of like David's psalms. I'm not putting them on the same, not putting them on the same stature at all. This is the very inspired word of God. We'll never sing songs better than are drawn directly from the words of Scripture. But whether a songwriter speaks of himself as a tree buckling in a storm, or he says, there's a lion in my lungs, and what I need to do is get my hands up and praise God anyway. That's a poet and a songwriter telling you that he's trying to find the way forward to praise God and to love Him and to trust Him in the middle of suffering, which we are ill-prepared for. We as human beings are ill-prepared for suffering. We as 21st century Christians are particularly ill-prepared for suffering. That's why students are fragile and very elderly people who have prepared their whole lives for the day of their graduation into heaven find themselves at the end with their hand trembling. It's normal. It's human. It's our frailty. But we have to prepare ourselves for suffering because this life is hard. That's what 1 Peter is about. That's why I chose it. Our church has been amazingly blessed and unified, and I will never, ever forget, on my deathbed, I'll tell people about how sweet and Christian you were in the storm of this pandemic and all that it cost you and how you kept looking to Jesus and kept trying to serve and love and give to one another. But I chose 1 Peter because we've been through so much. And 1 Peter is a letter about suffering. In his greeting, Peter says that he is writing to elect exiles. In other words, people who have been chosen by God to be saved by God, to be loved and rewarded and made rich by God, and yet in their present condition, in their present life, they're exiles, they're homeless They've been scattered and separated from what they once thought was their home. They've now been alienated in many cases from their friends and families. Peter begins to tell them how they are to bear up under all that suffering. Look with me again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is where we were last week. This is where I'll begin. Blessed be the God and Father, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's where we were last week. 
Before Peter addresses their very obvious and real suffering, Peter has a word of blessing to God. Peter, who's writing some 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, who knows because when Jesus restored him to his apostleship, part of Jesus' blessing to Peter was to remind Peter and to promise Peter that the next time Peter chose between being afraid of people and being faithful to Jesus, that Peter would be faithful to the end. And in fact, Jesus politely, elegantly told him, Peter, you're eventually going to be crucified in following me. That's quite a restoration into ministry. You'll be faithful, so faithful in fact, that they'll stretch out your hands and your arms and kill you the same way they killed me. This is 30 some years after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter knows that that's in his future. He's writing to scattered Gentile Christians across the Roman Empire and the first thing he has before dealing with his own obvious pressure and suffering as an apostle, as a fellow disciple, as a church leader, and dealing with their trouble, which is what's causing him to write the letter in the first place, before getting to all of their suffering, Peter has a blessing for God. By God's grace mercy, he's given us a living hope. We now have Jesus, who is risen from the dead, We've been saved not only to Christ, but we also have an inheritance waiting for us that cannot be taken from us. It's unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's currently waiting for you in heaven. And verse 5, God himself is going to guard you until he gets you safely home so that you can fully enjoy the life and all the riches that he has set aside for you. Because even though you're now exiled, you are elect. You are chosen and loved and forgiven more than you can possibly realize. And in verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice. See, if this seems a little choppy to you, there's a good reason for it. In the Greek New Testament, Peter, from verse 3 to verse 12, writes a single sentence. My number one Bible reading tip to you is slow down, so I'm trying to do it as I preach. It might be a better idea. My preaching professor might tell, you, might tell me that I'm blowing it by not giving you the whole sentence from verse 3 to verse 12. But I find so much here, so much comfort, so much joy in the face of suffering that I decided to slow down. And in verse 6, Peter says, because of everything I've just told you, you now rejoice. You have great joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, what's it say? Grieved by various trials. There's the tension again. You rejoice in your future security. You rejoice in your future safety. You rejoice in your future blessing, which starts now but will be completed later. You rejoice in these things that I'm telling you, but for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And it's the trials that now Peter will begin to talk about and which will run right through the rest of the book as he begins to talk to them about how to behave and what to do when their trusting God is tested. That's what this little paragraph is about. Peter's trying to give them some truths to hang on to so that when their trust in the God who they believe loves them is challenged and tested by their circumstances, 
Like a songwriter who has written about the faithfulness and the mercy of God suddenly gets news that someone he loves is dead. How do I reconcile the goodness of God with this present suffering and loss? The only way to get through those dark moments is to hold on to what you know is true. And the first thing Peter tells us is here in the first two verses. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials is a big phrase if you look at it carefully in Peter's context. Peter's referring to the kind of suffering that he's going to mention throughout the letter, whether it's big losses, big pressure, big trouble, big loss, or the, na- the daily grievances, the sand and the gears of life. Peter says you're being tested by all kinds of different trials. One of my little sand and the gears things are the pedestrians we have here in Huntington Beach. I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know if it's because our city is so beautiful and so safe, but pedestrians in this city walk without ever doing what we were all told to do as children, without looking either way. Never mind both ways. They don't look either way. I routinely would like to lock eyes with the person whose life I just spared, but they don't even look back. Not even the screech of the brakes and the hum of the motor alerts them that death was near. If one of us wasn't paying attention, they'd be dead and I'd be sad about it. That's just a little grit in the gears of my life, but there's so much more. And Peter, Greek scholars teach me, is trying to encompass all of the things that these people are going through. That's why it says various trials. You're being tested in all kinds of ways. You as a community, you and your churches, Peter says, under your elders, you young, you old, you're being tested in all kinds of ways. Some of you are finding that your heart is about to break. Others of you are merely annoyed and frustrated by the daily drip, drip, drip and difficulty of everyday life. Whatever's happening, Peter says, those things are only for a little while, and he says they're necessary. In other words, your trials, big or small, won't last forever, and if they're necessary, it means that God is in charge of them. And here's the astonishing thing. Verse 7 is a big verse. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a mouthful, ladies and gentlemen. I read that 12 times. I looked at it with all kinds of helps. I read it in several translations. It's a complicated sentence. And... Frankly, it surprised me. When I finally got convinced of what verse 7 is actually saying, I literally said, wow, out loud three times where I was studying. Sat up, looked at the wall, and said, wow, wow, wow. Turned into Owen Wilson for just a second. (laughs) And saying, wow, about what verse 7 says. Let me walk you through it. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who deserves praise and glory and honor? Jesus does. God does, right? Are you convinced about that? It didn't sound you, you were not at all you were not at all enthusiastic in participation. 
I got to tell you, 9 a.m. service, they were kind of into it. You right now to this point, uh, I, I feel like I'm boring you and I'm sorry. <laughs> Just ask you a really simple Bible question. Who deserves praise and honor and glory when the Lord is revealed? In other words, when Jesus is finally unveiled and the Lord returns and all is made well and right and everything that sin cursed and stained and everything that was ruined and broken by sin is redeemed and restored and made new, certainly the Lord Jesus is the one that deserves what Peter calls praise and glory and honor. Certainly the Father who did all this, certainly the Spirit who gave us new life, who was agent of the first creation, who restores all of life, certainly God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit deserve praise and glory and honor. But as I read that complicated sentence, here's what it actually means. And it means both at once. But what this verse is actually promising you is this. You are loved more than you can imagine. You have, you have been loved in this particular way. You have been chosen by God. And though you are now spiritually homeless and following Jesus may alienate you from all kinds of people and cause you all kinds of trouble, you have, verse 3, a living hope. And you have an inheritance waiting for you, according to verse 4. And according to verse 5, you are now being guarded by God himself until he gets you home to enjoy it all. All of that blessing means that you're now rejoicing. But right now, even though it's temporary, it's necessary for you to suffer through all kinds of troubles, great and small. And so that those trials, being grieved by those various difficulties, has a purpose. So that the genuineness, the reality, the authenticity of your faith is tested by those trials. And Peter says, your faith is more precious than gold. Gold itself is tested by fire. I looked it up. It takes almost 2,000 degrees to purify gold. In the ancient world, in a crucible, they would create a hellish temperature to put gold mixed with all kinds of impure elements, alloyed with all kinds of things, until the gold finally gave up and started melting and the impurities would float out of it. Peter says that's how you feel right now. You have been trusting God. You have been trusting Jesus. He's going to tell them in the next verse, you've been loving Jesus, and what it's causing you right now is pain. But when your tested faith, which is more precious than gold, because gold, no matter how pure, can be destroyed and lost, your tested faith, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing that made me say, wow, is this simple biblical idea. It's all over the Bible. I just never seen it here. Here's the first truth to hang on to. After the trial that you're in, God will reward you. That is the promise. And the current culture that we've created in the United States for at least 50 years and probably longer is an industry and a whole, we call it the evangelical industrial complex, to use a phrase from long ago from American history, that basically teaches Christians that if you have Jesus, your life right here, right now can be awesome. And if you find yourself in any kind of pain, it surely only means that you're not doing it right, so buy this book, listen to this song, listen to this guy, 
take Jesus on these little steps, check these four little boxes, and life will be awesome all over again. It's not true. A simple reading of the Bible will, will reveal that. What we are in the United States is an extraordinary historical aberration. We're outliers. We're complete exceptions. We've been given so much blessing, so much peace, so much prosperity, so much technology, so much ease, so much leisure, that we alone in Christian history stand in a little beautiful protected bubble. But Peter would say, in every life, even in your life, and in America in 2022, maybe more so in the years to come, Trials will come. They won't last forever, but they will be necessary. And the point of the trial will be to test whether you actually trust God or not. And God is so good that after he's put your trust in him in the fire, whether it's through external persecution or internal temptations, whether you are drawn away by your own heart, away from God, and you suffer through that, or you're being persecuted and spoken of poorly, and it's costing you socially and economically to follow Jesus, whatever the trial is, because trials come of all sizes and all kinds, some of it's heartbreaking, some of it's merely annoying, if you bear up under it well, when Jesus is finally unveiled, you will receive from God himself praise and glory and honor. And the reason I didn't believe that and didn't want to believe it is because God, of course, deserves all the praise and the glory and the honor. Why would God praise? Why would God glorify? Why would God honor anybody who obeyed him? Because he's a good father. Doesn't every loving parent praise their child and honor them and bless them when the kid finally does what the kid should have always done? Don't we celebrate the smallest things? You ever see a kid learn to take his first steps? It's a party. You're doing so good. You're so big. And then, they're, then they really learn to run, and we regret that they ever learned to walk. <laughs> then you give them the car keys, and it's a whole other problem. But at every step, when a child finally does what the parent has been trying to teach the child to do, Praise and glory and honor break out for the child, and that does not detract in any way from the praise and the glory and the honor due to God. It only enhances it. It only shows how good and generous he is that God will actually reward and bless us if we merely do what we should. This is found all the way through the Bible. Read with me James chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus, James is the brother of Jesus. James is rooted in the Old Testament and particularly in the book of Proverbs, and for people in their own trials and their own sufferings, James says this. Read the Bible with me. James wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The man who is steadfast under trial, he is happy. Not at that moment. Rather, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There's five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. It's such a mind-blowing concept that Bible scholars aren't entirely sure what to do with it, but the idea is core and obvious. God rewards those who do what they should. It's not to earn salvation. It's a benefit of being his child. God is so good that he'll reward us for doing what we should do. So don't dodge every trial. 
Ask yourself, rather, what kind of Christian should I be in this trial? This annoyance, this grief, this trouble, this heartbreak has come upon me. I didn't seek it. It just burst into my life. I did exactly what Jesus asked me to do, and it got me into all kinds of trouble. Now people are talking about me. Now there's an investigation at work about me. Now people are saying I'm hateful and bigoted, for instance, because I had the audacity to say that Jesus is my Savior and he can be anybody's Savior if they trust him. And I said what the Apostle said, and I said that there's no other name given to people by which anybody can be saved except the name of Jesus. And now, now I'm in the spotlight. Now there's a bullseye painted on me. Ask yourself in those moments, in all the grief, in all the troubles that you have, ask yourself what kind of Christian you should be and keep in mind your heavenly Father who does not miss a tear and does not waste a trial, who is in charge of absolutely everything. He's so good and generous that though he owes you absolutely nothing, even though the only reason you're saved is because the Father sent the Son to die for your sins and gave you the Holy Spirit to give you the life of Jesus himself, God's so good that he'll reward you for doing what you should have done in the first place second truth is in verse 8 my favorite verse in the whole chapter though you have not seen him Jesus the Jesus you're waiting for the Jesus you're waiting to be revealed and unveiled though you have not seen him you love him I love that because it includes me it includes you Doubtless Peter was thinking of Thomas, who was not with the disciples the first time Jesus showed up back from the dead. And Thomas, who was not with the rest of the group, said, unless I see him, I won't believe. So Jesus came again, <laughs> and he went directly to Thomas, and he said, check me out, handle the wounds. Put your hands on my body. See what it cost me. See where they killed me. And Thomas fell at the feet of Jesus and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, you see, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who do not see and will believe. That's you. That's me. That's these Gentiles scattered across the Roman Empire. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What's Peter reminding them of here? They're suffering for the sake of Jesus because it's love for Jesus that brought you into trial in the first place. When you're being tested, when you're being tried, and when you're suffering through temptation, remember that it is love for Jesus that is causing the pain in the first place. It may seem random and chaotic to you, but if you are a Christian, you suffer as a Christian. It's love for the Lord that got you into this mess, and that needs to be kept in mind. Listen to Jesus himself at the end of the Beatitudes. This is a Beatitude. It's the final Beatitude. It's the longest of them. It's last for a reason because Jesus is going to put an exclamation point on what the blessed life actually is. In the Beatitudes, he's explaining the life of a disciple and he's doing in a long list of blessings and pronouncements of what it actually means to be 
truly happy, truly blessed. He's doing what I'm trying to do this morning from 1 Peter, reorient people's thinking about what it means to be happy in the world that God made while we wait for his son. And this beatitude is so countercultural that I've never seen it in Christian art. I didn't see it in a Thomas Kincaid painting anywhere. If you don't know who Thomas Kincaid is, please don't look it up and don't bother. Listen to Jesus tell disciples in the first century and leave this here for us, what it means to be blessed, literally what it means to be happy. Read the words of Jesus with me. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You getting this? Jesus says, if they're after you for my sake, celebrate. That's countercultural, isn't it? Look carefully at the verse, because there is a careful, there is a qualification. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In other words, if you're on your own dumb adventure, it doesn't count. <laughs> if, you're behaving like a, if you're behaving like a jerk and people are after for you, that's not following Jesus. Some people are getting confused. They're Christians and they think that because they're Christians, that gives them the right to behave like jerks. And they're calling it persecution. None of it's true. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If following me gets you into all kinds of trouble, be happy about it. He doubles down. Rejoice and be glad. Here's why. For your what? For your reward is great in heaven. A greater will reward will be gained and granted by the grace of God for those who suffer well for Jesus. They will be rewarded in a way that those who avoid trial and persecution for the sake of Jesus will not. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they prosecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, in other words, will make sure your love for him is not misplaced. Everyone in this world will somehow, someway disappoint you. My first years at the church, I used to say, just to adjust expectations, give me long enough and I'll disappoint every single one of you. Never, I promise, by God's grace, never in a catastrophic, sinful, scandalous, he's in the papers, he can't be a pastor anymore kind of way. But I'm frail, I'm human, I'm afraid, I'm sinful, I'll mess up, I'll not show up, I'll say the wrong thing, I'll fail to help or fail to understand every single one of you given enough time. The love and the trust you've placed in me will someday be misplaced, not in the case of Jesus. Jesus, by his character, nature, and by his own holy will, will not disappoint any single person who ever puts trust in him. That's why Peter says at the end of the book, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, keep reading the Bible with me, you're doing so well. Listen to Peter wrap it up. This is the end of the letter. He's going to draw the idea from the first part together with the conclusion. Peter wrote, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
God himself reserves the right to comfort you in the end. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, whatever your temptations, whatever your suffering, whatever your pain tells you, God is filled with grace towards you. And he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God will himself. Notice the redundancy. You will not be comforted by angels. You will not be comforted by changed circumstances. You will be comforted by God himself. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, church, the love that brought you into the trial can sustain you through it. That's what's always at the center of the test. In this annoyance, in this heartbreak, in this pain, in this disappointment, in this persecution, will you continue to love Jesus as you once did? Will the pain of suffering make your love for him grow greater? Because trials always do something to love They either destroy it and erase it or they increase it. The beauty of being a pastor of a church for a long time and knowing some of you when I was in college and seminary here is that I have learned so much from you. There's couples in this church that I knew when they were just getting started in their marriage who are now 50, 55, 60 years into marriage. I wouldn't embarrass anybody by naming some of you, but some of you are sitting close. And seeing how through trials, through pain, through loss, through job loss, through physical catastrophes, through medical crisis, the love has increased and maintained. It's taught me so much. Because I'm only half that on that journey of the marriage of some of these older couples. And I'm making notes saying, when my body begins to fail, when my wife begins to fail, this is the way we have to love each other. This is what is always in the crucible. Will you trust God in your present circumstances? Will you love him more through the trial? Or will you pull back and choose your own way? Always remember the love of Jesus that brought you into the trial because you were giving your life to him can sustain you through it. And then at the end, Peter says, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your trust in God, Peter says, will not be unrewarded. It will not be misplaced. Your salvation will be complete and better than you can imagine. We don't know what to do with the word soul in English. It's a very special biblical word, and it doesn't mean the immaterial spiritual part of you. It means all that you are. Peter is telling people who are suffering and watching their lives and their very bodies change under the pain of persecution and under the pain of loss for following Jesus, don't you worry, Jesus is going to save all of you. He's going to redeem and restore everything that sin and suffering cost you. You want to see the Bible come together? This isn't Peter writing now. This is Peter's closest friend, the Apostle John, writing some 30 years after Peter, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation in the 21st chapter. John gives us a glimpse of future history and says this. Read this with me. John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's in the book for you to give you a vision through your present tears, to help you blink back the tears and hold on to the truth, not only of the present companionship and support of God, but of future glory. When God himself will delegate that work to no angel, God himself will wipe away tears. God himself will establish and confirm and restore you. God himself will say that all things are being made new and that these things he told John were to be written down because what God promised to you through suffering is trustworthy and true. These are the truths we hold on to so that even though we're grieved, we can stay joyful.